Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. We'll read verses 4 through 7. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth his spirit, sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. When he came to his senses, he went home to his father. That statement may sound familiar. It really reflects what's found in Luke chapter 15 of the prodigal. Open your Bibles to Luke 15, and let's consider briefly as we introduce our study this morning what happens with the prodigal. Luke 15, verses 17 through 19. He comes to his senses... He has that eureka moment, if you will. The light bulb goes off. Not going to spend another day taking care of the pigs. I'm going to go home to the father. And his reasoning is this. In my father's house, the servants have bread enough and despair and I'm I'm starving I'm hungry and I while I'm no longer worthy to be called his his son I can go back and be his servant and I'll know a better way of life than I'm presently experiencing well you know how the story continues while he was afar off the father sees him and he runs out to greet him, and he hugs him, and he is so compassionate and caring. And it's as if the prodigal can't get his statement of repentance completely out about how he had sinned uh, before God and, and before his father and how wrong he was. The father's overjoyed to see him. And it's obvious that he's been waiting every day, it seems, for his father's, or the son rather, to come home. You know, as I think about that, what if the prodigal had said, I'm here to be your servant. And the father says, no, I want to make you more. I want you to be my son. And the prodigal says, I don't desire that. And I don't deserve that. I desire to only be your slave. And that's it. Don't treat me like a son. Treat me like a slave. I want you to know that's what some of the Judaizing teachers in Galatians were really saying. I'm not that interested in being your son, father. 
and being your daughter, Father. I'll be your slave. I don't deserve this. I just need to be your slave, to be in bondage. That's in essence what these people were saying. Here's the math. Jesus plus his gospel equal every spiritual blessing. Ephesians 1 and verse 3. Jesus and his gospel equal unsearchable riches. Ephesians 3 and verse 8. Jesus and his gospel equal the promise and being heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Romans 8 verses 15 through 7. But Jesus plus his gospel plus anything else equals distortion. Equals perversion is really tantamount another way of speaking of another gospel. See the words of the Apostle Paul in Galatians 1 verses 6 through 10. The gospel doesn't need to be added to or taken from. The gospel needs to be taken in its fullness because it tells us of what Jesus has done for us to be right with God. Now, when we look at Galatians, you have to understand how easy it would have been, especially for people from a Jewish background, but ironically, people who were Gentiles who became Christians, it must have been easy for them to embrace various aspects of Judaism. You know why I say that? Look at Galatians chapter 2 and verses 11 through 14. In Galatians 2, 11 through 14, you have an apostle like Peter and a real man of God, Mr. Encouragement himself, like Barnabas, being so strongly influenced by some of the Jewish teaching that was being done, let's add the law, let's add circumcision, let's add various aspects of the law. After all, it just makes sense. For 1,500 years, this was God's will for his people. And you see individuals like Peter and Barnabas being negatively influenced by people who would take Jesus and his gospel and add to it. And what I'm saying is this. If it were possible for Peter... And for Barnabas, as good of men as they were, to be guilty on occasion of adding to Jesus and his gospel, I wonder if it might be a temptation for us today. You think it might be a temptation? And it's one that needs to be avoided. But it's kind of beguiling. It's kind of like a spell. 
And Paul refers to it as bewitching. This is bewitching in Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Because the idea of our doing is something that's emphasized in Scripture. The idea of our acting is something that is emphasized in Scripture. It has its place. And so, one can see how easy it might be at times to take Jesus, his gospel, and to add other matters. Or to subtract matters from Jesus and his gospel. When you look at the first two chapters of Galatians, there's only six. The first two chapters tell us about the gospel of Jesus declared. Paul says, I have received the gospel by revelation from God himself. Chapters 3 and 4. The gospel of Jesus Christ defended if it's declared in the first two chapters, it is defended in chapters 3 and 4. And in these two chapters, Paul goes to great lengths to make a case concerning these Judaizing teachers who were saying, by all means take Jesus, by all means accept the gospel, but understand that if you're a Gentile, you need to be circumcised, a Gentile male. And if you're a Gentile, you need to keep various aspects of the law. And if you do not, you cannot be saved. Acts 15, 1, verses 4 and 5, 2. All right. Look at the 31 verses that make up Galatians chapter 4. In Galatians chapter 4, what Paul is going to do is defend Jesus in his gospel and his gospel by making three more arguments. He is going to present a devastating case concerning those who would try to take the law and give it a place beyond what God had ever intended in order to get people to do right. In Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, Paul will make a historical argument. A historical argument. The two words I want you to think about here are the words inheritance and status. In order to get an inheritance today, it is normally the case that one's status, are they part of the family? Are they a relative by blood? 
Is there a last will and testament that declares this person to be the one who is the heir of the inheritance? So keep in mind those two terms, inheritance and status. Because really Paul's dealing with them in these first 11 verses. Then Galatians chapter 4 verses 12 through 20, a second argument. This is a relational argument. Paul is looking back on earlier days when the people of Galatia had first become Christians. He's speaking about the relationship that they had and the sense of togetherness and unity that they had with Paul. My, how things have changed, and they have changed because of the teaching of Judaizers and the influence that they were having on these Christians. Galatians 4, 21 through 31. An allegorical argument. More about an allegory and what it means, but it's story time for the Apostle Paul and for his readers. And he takes an event out of the Old Testament. Abraham fathering a child through Hagar compares it and contrasts it to Abraham fathering a child through Sarah, Ishmael and Isaac being the children. And all of this is to marshal up the point that he wants to make. No one has the right to make laws where God has not. And no one has the right to take the old law and give it a place that God never intended. No one has the right to make laws God hasn't, and no one has the right to take the Old Testament law and give it a place God never gave it. Is everybody with me? Think I've laid that out for you? Let's see what Paul has got to say through the Holy Spirit. Galatians 4, 1 through 11, this historical argument. When you look at verses 1 through 7, you'll see that this is really an argument from slavery to sonship. From slavery to sonship. You'll see this especially in the first three verses. The idea is this. It's just pretty much a historical fact, legally, that one, if they are to inherit blessing, if they are to have the inheritance, they need to be a relative. They need to be a relative. And even if they are a relative, if they are too young, they are under the oversight of a tutor or guardian until the blessing, they're old enough to, to, to receive the blessing, the inheritance. It's all about inheritance and status. And what Paul says is this. There's really no difference between 
a person who may be a relative, but if they're still a child, they're too immature to have the inheritance. And so in that sense, they're a lot like a slave. Their status. But the time will come when they become adults, they become more mature, and he refers to that person as free. Free to enjoy the status that's found in the promise of God in Christ. See what he's dealing with? And when you think about Galatians 3.24, what was the old law? It was a schoolmaster, a tutor. For 1,500 years approximately, the children of Israel were basically in kindergarten. If you really want to look at the early days of God's promise, go back to Israel. We talk about the early church, the early people of God, and what we should from Acts 2 onward. But there is a sense when we can see the eternal purpose and plan of God as God worked through Israel and his promise. And we should miss that, but you know what? Look at verse 3. He says, notice what he says. You are under the elementary principles of the world. We were under what? The elementary principles of the world. And the idea is this. Before Christ and outside of Christ... We were living in a time of shadows and types, figures, where the reality would eventually come in Jesus. Before Christ and outside of Christ. Now, is the Old Testament God's will? Yes. But was the Old Testament to have an eternal purpose. Was it intended to last forever? Of course not. That brings us to verse 4. And I want you to keep in mind what he had to say. When you were under the law, you were under the elementary principles of the world. Before Christ and outside of Christ... Promise is coming, but this is before Christ. It's outside of his coming. Now notice verse 4. When, mark it, when the fullness of time had come. The, the implication is this, it had come. When the fullness of time had come, when the fullness of time, when the gospel would be proclaimed, Mark 1 and verse 15, when Jesus has come, when he has gone to the cross, he's arisen from the grave, he's ascended back to heaven, he's in his exalted place at the right hand of God, Acts 2, 30 through 36. Yes, when the fullness of time had come, listen to what he says next. 
God, what did God do? God sent forth his son. Then he says, born of a woman, his incarnation, his humanity, and his Godhood, God sent his son, son of God, born of a woman, son of man, but of a virgin. Matthew 1, 23 through 25. Born under the law. And why? Why did God in the fullness of time send forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem us from the law? Bought and paid for. He purchased the church with his blood, Acts 20 and verse 28. Redeemed we are by his blood, Ephesians 1 and verse 7. And as a result, we have experienced the riches of his grace, Ephesians 2, 4 through 7. Continue with me. So that we might receive adoption as sons. No longer slaves in one sense, but sons. We are adopted into the family of God and have the full riches and blessings of being part of the family of God due to Jesus. Now here's the question. How can anybody in their right mind think that's not enough? How can anybody in their right mind think that's not enough? How can we modify, improve, and supplement Jesus and his gospel? You can't. You're out of your cotton-picking mind to think that you can. And that's Paul's point in Galatians chapter 4. But he's not finished. Look at verses 4 through 7. It says God sent his son. And by the way, let me ask you this. Thomas, how did God send his son? Did he send him figuratively? He sent him personally, didn't he? Literally. The same section of scripture says God sent forth the spirit of his son. Personally, the Holy Spirit. Literally, to dwell where? What's the passage say? To dwell in our hearts. Notice that Galatians 4, 4 through 7 is one of the great passages that talk about what the Trinity, what the Godhead, what Father, Son, and Holy Spirit do for us to be in the family of God. God sends Jesus. Then God sends the Spirit of His Son 
to our hearts. It's a God thing that makes it possible for us to be family. Revelation 21 and verse 7. I am your father and you shall be my sons and daughters. Galatians 4, 4 through 7 sound very much like Romans 5, 5 through 8. And the spirit being shed, given to our hearts. And that Jesus was given for our sins. All right, look at verses 8 through 11, same passage, Galatians 4. If he is gone from this idea of historical argument and inheritance and sonship and family, not slavery, why would anybody want to be a slave when you be a son or daughter? But next, how on earth can you go back is what he says in verses 8 through 11. How in the world can you go back to what? Look at the passage. Verse 9. The weak and beggarly elementary principles. The weak and beggarly elementary principles. Same expression, elementary principles, as verse 3. But notice what he's saying. In verse 8... He says, you had been enslaved to false gods. You know what he's saying? A lot of you Gentiles that have become Christians have come straight out of idolatry. Look at verse 9. The weak and worthless or beggarly elementary principles of the world... You have known God. It's possible to know God in his gospel. It's impossible. It's possible rather to know Jesus and his gospel. John 17 and verse 3. 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 through 10. And as a result, one is known by God as one comes to Jesus in faith. Notice what these Gentile Christians are doing. Verse 10. You observe days and months and seasons and years. It sounds like they bought into Judaism, doesn't it? Days and months and seasons and years. That's what the context is supporting. You become Christians, and yet you're also buying into the fact that you have to keep the old law, various aspects, in order to be right with God. You sound just like the prodigal that I used at the beginning of this lesson. And what Paul says in verse 11 is, I am afraid that I have labored over you. How? What's the text say? In vain. That all of this time and ministry and love and teaching
is going the wrong direction. Here's the point. I hope you'll put this in your notes. When law is used in a way that God never intended. When law is used in a way that God never intended. Listen, Troy. There's no difference between the result and idolatry. Look, I'll say it again. When the law is used in a way that God never intended, there is no functional difference between that use of the law in a way God never intended and idolatry. Why do you say that, Mike? Because he uses the same exact expression, verse 3, of the law that he uses of paganism in verse 9. Why? Because both are opting for another gospel. That's why. Now the relational argument, verses 12 through 20. He's saying, what's happened to our relationship? When you get to this section in Galatians 4, it's so important to see the heart of the apostle. He has a passionate heart for souls. We can think about Paul the apostle, Galatians 1. We can think about Paul the theologian, Galatians chapter 2. We can think about Paul the defender of the faith, Galatians chapter 3. But we need to understand he's motivated by an intense love for souls and the God who made those souls. And that's Galatians 4, verses 12 through 20. What does he call them in Galatians 4, verse 12? He says, brethren, these are people that are moving away from the truth and they're doing so rapidly, it seems. Galatians 1, 6 through 9. If they continue this direction, he's going to think my labor for them was in vain. Prior verse here in Galatians 4. But he's still calling them brethren at this point. I entreat you, he says. I plead with you. I really encourage you. Become like me because I became like you. I love that expression. Become like me. Follow me as I follow Christ. 1 Corinthians 11.1 1. He told one ruler, I would that you were such as I am except for these chains. Acts 26, verses 28 and 29. The things that you both learned and received, heard and saw in me, do and the God of peace will be with you. Philippians 4, verse 9. But notice what he, he says. I became like you. And there is 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 23, where I became all things to all men that I might win some. And this is Paul, the former Pharisee, who was instructed at the feet of the great Rabbi Gamaliel, telling these people that when the law is given a place that God never intended, when laws are made that God never made, watch out. Because it's doing something to Jesus and his gospel. It's messing with it. 
Now notice in verses 12 through 16, their attitude toward Paul. Notice he's taking them back down memory lane, we'd say. Go back in the not-so-distant past and consider the relationship we have with each other. It's a relational argument. He says, verse 12, you did me no wrong. Wouldn't it be great if that were always the way it was between the people in the pew and those who preach? You did me no wrong. They didn't treat him poorly when he was first in their midst. Notice verses 13 and 14. Paul mentions a bodily ailment that he had when he was first in their presence. And it, he goes on to say, You did not scorn me or despise me. They didn't look down on Paul because of his appearance and his illness or problem. Paul commends them for that. You, was, you listened to what I said. And then verse 14 says, You received me as though I were an angel. And then it's the ultimate compliment, Adam. You received me and my message as Christ himself. And then notice verse 15. The text says, What then has become of your blessedness? You blessed me when I was first with you. What's changed? What's changed? And, you know, they're going to think about it, these Galatian Christians. What's changed is a group of teachers that's come along. They started bad-mouthing Paul, and they're adding some things to the gospel. And Paul is trying to care for us and say, this can't be right. They're messing with the truth. Don't listen to them. And you've got to love verse 15. And this is why some people believe that Paul must have had eye problems, vision problems. We don't know for sure. But what Paul says is this, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. If you could, you would have, if that would have worked. I'll tell you what, Waylon, that's the kind of relationship preachers and churches ought to have. I'd do anything for you if I could because we're family in Jesus. That's from the preacher to those in the pew and from those in the pew to the preacher. Now notice verse 16 because it's a transition verse. Have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? I'm not the one that's created this relational rift. You are. 
you are because of your listening to teachers who are teaching things that they ought not teach. Now, verses 17 through 20, he speaks of his attitude toward them. He says, I want you to know this in verse 17 and 18. These teachers make much of you. Basically what he is saying is this. They talk a good game. You hear me, Kyle? They talk a good game. Some of the things they say seem to make a lot of sense. But they do that to no good purpose. Ever stop and just ask yourself, what really was the purpose of trying to get people to keep circumcision and various aspects of the law? It was trying to avoid persecution and difficulty and looking more acceptable in the eyes of some. They want to shut you out. so that you will make much of them. They want to isolate and seclude you so that you will make a big deal out of them. My little children, verse 19. Ladies, many of you will relate to this. Paul says, I feel like a woman that's going through the pains of childbirth again with you. When children are little, they test your patience. And when children grow up, they test your heart. And the churches that Paul was addressing, these Galatian Christians, were testing both his patience and heart. And he's trying to show compassion, but at the same time, he is rebuking them for being so drawn to a law that God never intended for it to have the purpose that the Judaizing teachers were giving it. I want Christ to be formed in you. But you're going back. You're reverting. You're regressing. I wonder how many Christians are regressing and going back to a far more worldly view of things than more Christ-like. Verse 20, Paul writes, I wish that I could be present with you I wish that I could be present with you and change my tone. And then he says, I am perplexed. I am at a loss. I don't know what to say. How in the world can you be thinking like this? When you think about what you used to be and what you've become because of the promise of God in Jesus, how can you think like this? 
verses 21 through 31, the allegorical argument. And an allegory is where a historical event is taken and it has its particulars applied to the events of today. What Paul is going to do is take a historical event. God had promised Abraham and Sarah that he would bless them with a child. Isn't that the truth? Isn't that the good news that God gave them? Isn't it? But it was hard to wait. And Sarah suggests this, and Abram does it. They take matters into their own hands and help God out. They supplement God's will. They are going to improve it. And he has a relationship with a slave, Hagar. And she conceives a son, Ishmael. And the people of Ishmael would be a thorn in the side of the people of Israel for a long, long time. All because Father Abraham and Mother Sarah thought they knew better than God. And Paul takes this and basically says... The teachers, the false teachers there in the churches of Galatia, they are doing the same thing with the law that Abram and Sarah initially tried to do. They're trying to supplement it and improve it. Make it happen in and of themselves. And those who know the story... Hagar and Ishmael would be cast out. Ishmael would mock and hate Isaac when Isaac came along. Genesis 21 and verse 9. You can read Genesis chapter 15 through 21. And that's what he's basing all of this on. Now notice his conclusion beginning at verse 28. You brothers are like who? Isaac. You're children of promise. Whether you're Jew or Gentile, if you've come to God through Jesus and his gospel, you are like Isaac, children of promise. Notice verse 29, just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. Remember who Hagar and Ishmael are, be li are being likened to. The false teachers concerning circumcision and aspects of the law needing to be complied with by everyone who would come to Jesus. That's what he's saying. And they're persecuting you. They're persecuting you. 
and they're persecuting me. Notice verse 30. What does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman uh, will not inherit with the son of the free woman. Don't listen to them. Get them out. Verse 31, so brothers, we are not children of the slave, but the free. Now notice what he's just done. He began the chapter by talking about inheritance and status. And he concludes the chapter by talking about inheritance and status. And he devastates the false teaching of these people. Now, here's what I want to do. I gave you a main point to remember from the first 11 verses when I said, when the law is used in a way God never intended, it becomes very much like idolatry. Based on Galatians 4.3 and Galatians 4.9. Now here's the second one. When the law is used in a way God never intended, there will be a lack of blessing and joy. Look at verses 14 and 15. There will be a lack of blessing and joy. And relationships will be unnecessarily hurt. Verse 16. Have I become your enemy if I tell you the truth? They are telling you not to listen to me, even though I was the one who brought you to Christ, Paul writes. He says, I want to tell you something. You shouldn't be listening to them. Choose whose message you'll embrace. And then when you get to the last section, verses 21 through 31 in this allegory that he tells concerning Isaac and Ishmael. Those who give the law a place God never intended ultimately take us into slavery and ultimately cost us our inheritance. That's what he's saying. You know, I've been talking about the book of Galatians for most of this month and a little bit last month. And it's kind of easy sometimes for us to think of this, you know, the events going on in Galatians as something that can't really happen now. I mean... Who is it out there that's really saying, you know, if you're a Gentile male, you've got to be circumcised and you've got to observe various aspects of the law? Well, I tell you what, legalism is a lot more than that. Legalism means that through a strict application 
of rules. One can merit or enhance one's standing by God. Through a strict keeping of rules, one can merit or enhance one's status with God. Beware of legalism. Let me give you some signs. Some possible signs of legalistic tendencies. When what we do becomes more and more stressed and what Jesus does is neglected. I understand the Bible talks about obedience. I would not take one word of God's truth out concerning that. But I'll tell you what, grace through faith in Jesus must be stressed. And what God has done must be stressed more than what we do, although we need to emphasize both properly. Because what Jesus did is what we could never do. But we can respond to him out of love and humility and devotion. And we ought to. Legalism tends to lead to pride and condescension. Or to low esteem and depression. Legalism tends to lead... To pride and condescension or to low esteem and depression. Legalism is imposing our personal preferences and judgments on others. Imposing our personal preferences and judgment on others as though that were the standard of truth. Imposing personal preferences and our judgments on others as though that were the standard of truth. Legalism tends to emphasize rules over grace... Actions over attitudes. And what we do over the condition of our heart. Legalism is attempting... To gain God's approval, to merit His goodwill, and to improve His salvation. I go back to something I said at the beginning of the lesson. If the Apostle Peter, Troy, 
struggled with this sometimes. If Barnabas struggled with it, you think you and I might? Can we not be honest enough to see it's a struggle? The Bible doesn't say you have to be a Republican to go to heaven. Amen? I knew I wouldn't get one. The Bible doesn't say you have to be a Democrat to go to heaven. Bible speaks of modest apparel, but the Word of God does not address what to wear to worship. And some can be dressed to the hilt and have a heart full of sin. The Bible doesn't address how to school your children. And we can proclaim and we ought to proclaim that children ought to be instructed by their parents. And one can have convictions and strong opinions. But be careful. I can believe in the personal indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and I do. But I have a brother sitting on row two that doesn't agree with me completely. One day we'll both find out And one of us is going to be pleasantly surprised. But that's going to be in the presence of the Lord. And we ought to treat each other right now. God has not even mandated what translation we must use. We ought to talk about better translations. We ought to talk about them. But we ought to encourage people to truly read and study God's Word. And that will often involve comparative studies of various translations. Those are some of the areas where today we might need to take a look at ourselves. you're not a Christian through faith, repentance, and baptism one responds to Jesus and his gospel one puts on Jesus at baptism, Galatians 3.27 one cannot be saved without baptism any more than one can be saved without faith one can't be saved without repentance any more than one can be saved without faith through faith, repentance, and baptism respond to the grace of God in Jesus. Let us stand and sing.